We are in Judges chapter 18 this morning as we continue to worship our God through the hearing of His Word. Judges chapter 18, and in some respects, if you were here last week, you're going to get, we are going to get, a kind of a repetition of what we considered in chapter 17. We are, of course, in the epilogue of Judges. The author has turned to pinpoint the source of all the chaos, all of the sin that we've seen so far in this book. And in chapter 17 and 18, he's focusing on religious sin and the chaos that ensued. While in chapters 19 through 21, he turns to the moral chaos and the sin that ensues. Most specifically, chapter 17 focused on the religious sin of an individual, while here in chapter 18 we see the religious sin of an entire tribe. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And this is leading to great sin, chaos, and idolatry. Chapter 18 of Judges, this is a a long passage, but it's important, I believe, that we read it right up front so that we get the big picture. But this is God's Word, Judges chapter 18. Let us receive it with faith. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtetel, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth. And how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, the brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, the people will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. For God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is, on, that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanah-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim. And came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. 
They turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by at the entrance of the gate with the 600 armed men with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to the tribe and clan uh, to, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, And what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a, pe- to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city, and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Brethren, this is God's word. Amen. Let us bow and ask for the blessing upon the preaching of it. Blessed Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would you give us now bread from heaven? Would you nourish us with the words of eternal life? Would you prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the seed of truth? Would you help us to believe what is so often unnatural for us to believe? Would you do what we cannot this hour? Because of Christ Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. One of C.S. Lewis's most famous sermons, which has now been turned into a book, was his 1941 address, The Weight of Glory. I'm sure you've heard of it. There's a lot of memorable material in that sermon. It's definitely worth reading and pondering if you've never done so. But for most people, it's something, what, something that he said in the introduction that's really had a profound effect. 
C.S. Lewis begins by talking about our desires as human beings. And he compares our desires in relation to the promises of the gospel. And listen to what he says. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the author offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis argues here that our desires, our longings, our ambitions, our passions are not too strong leading us into sin and error, but too weak. Sin has rendered us half-hearted. It leads us to grasp after cheap substitutes that pale in comparison to what's given to us in the Gospel. And in this, we are all too often too easily pleased. We love the cheap substitutes of this world and we grasp after them when an eternal weight of glory is promised to us in the gospel. I believe Lewis's famous words here serve as a perfect commentary to what's going on in this chapter. As I mentioned before, the author is turning to pinpoint the root of the problem here in Israel, the sinfulness that lies at the foundation of all of the chaos and, and all, of, all of the problems that have preceded this chapter. And the essence of that sin is idolatry. What is idolatry? How do we define it? If you've been here before, uh, undoubtedly you've heard me argue that idolatry is not necessarily you know, bowing down to uh, a carved image uh, according to the primitive practice. But it's rather it's something much more comprehensive, something much more subtle, something much more common. Idolatry, as we saw last week, can be worshiping the right God in the wrong way according to our own personal preferences. Idolatry is picking and choosing aspects of God's Word or God's character that we like while we discard and, and the, the aspects that we don't like. And we set those aside, again, according to our own personal preferences. But harping on what C.S. Lewis says here, idolatry is also taking good things in this life and making them ultimate things. Idolatry is often seeking uh, to fulfill legitimate desires that we have, uh, seeking fulfillment of those desires in the wrong things. We long for peace. We long for joy. We long for comfort and security and happiness. But where do we seek those things in? The things of this world, rather than in the true and living God. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1. Idolatry is exchanging the truth of God for the lie. Sinful man still worships and serves something, but the worship of the true and living God is exchanged for the worship of created earthly things 
And what Paul says there, this is judgment. This is God's judgment. And brethren, that's exactly what's going on in Judges chapter 18. In our story, Micah, as we saw last week, has some legitimate desires, but he rejects the true one living and true God and looks for these things in idols and worships God according to his own preferences. And what happens in the end? He's left empty and broken. The tribe of Dan has some legitimate desires as well, things that God has promised them, actually. But they spurn God's ways, and they turn to a substitute, which is nothing less than a cheap substitute. And this leads to judgment as well. So brethren, this morning we see that these things were written down for our instruction. These things were written for us, and these things were written, I want you to see, so that we recognize the danger and deception of idolatry. So that we see the tendency in our own hearts. So that we might rightly, seeing these things, run to the solution. And find grace and help in time of need. So that we might escape the judgment of God. That's what we're going to see here this morning. And I've got three points to kind of open this up for us today. The first is this. Three points today. First, favorable circumstances do not always mean that we have the favor of God. Favorable circumstances don't always mean that we have the favor of God. As we begin here in verse 1, right away we see that what's happening is bad. In those days, there was no king in Israel. The the author's reminding us, hey, just letting you know, chaos is following here. We've already seen this in the religious life of Micah, but now, as I mentioned before, the focus is on the tribe of Dan. So how are we introduced to Dan? Well, again, in verse 1, Dan's described to us as seeking an inheritance to dwell in. They need a place to live. They need a a land to settle down in, to put down roots. Well, right when we come to this question, or or come to this statement, a question ought to arise in our minds. Wait a second. When Israel came out of the Exodus, and when they were heading into the land of conquest, didn't the Lord already give them an inheritance? Didn't the Lord already give them a land to dwell in? Why then? Are they looking for a land to dwell in now? Well, this points us back to chapter 1 of the book of Judges. There we read that Dan had the responsibility to go into their inheritance and with God's help to drive out the people and secure what God had given them. God commanded them, essentially, I'm going to go with you, but you have to do this. But what happened in chapter 1? Well, if you remember again and again and again, each tribe struggled and failed. And when we get to Dan, Dan was the worst at securing the inheritance that God gave them. The, 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 the inhabitants of the land, the Amalekites, they drove them into the hill country. 
Dan had, was far outside the land. They, they failed utterly. And why did they fail? They failed because of unbelief. It wasn't because the, 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 the enemy was too strong. It wasn't because Dan just wasn't really effective at war. They failed because of unbelief. So it's because of unbelief that they had no land to dwell in. So what do they do then? What's happening here in chapter 1? Well, what's happening is they're turning away from what God had promised them and they start to look elsewhere. They would not receive what God had given them. It's too hard. I can't do it. So they started looking for an easier solution. Here in chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, Verse 3 of chapter 18, they send out five men, five men to, to spy and explore the land. And you look at what happens here. They send out spies and then they lodge in this house. It's clear this is recalling the original conquest, right? With, a, with the spies lodging uh, in, the, in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. This is a, a new conquest, as it were. In fact, the house of Micah here is kind of likened to a brothel, a spiritual adultery in a sense. But, but this is a new conquest, conquest, which is really nothing but a rejection of the old. We saw last week that the, the Levite was wandering around far from the land of his inheritance, looking for what is right in his own eyes. And now we have a tribe doing the very same thing. Interestingly enough, their paths cross. They run into our old friend Micah and his Levite priest. Verse 3 actually tells us that um, they recognize the voice of the Levite, and that's why they turn aside. It's an odd little note. Um, Hang with me, because at the very end, we'll figure out why they recognized his voice. But they run into him, and they ask him, what are you doing here? Who brought you here? They're surprised. They're shocked. Why? Because a Levite wasn't supposed to be there. He had left his inheritance as well. But notice what the Levite says. Verse 4. Micah's hired me, and I've become his priest. Here, if it wasn't clear already, we really get an insight into his true motives. He's a priest in Micah's house because he was hired. Because it pays well. I made the argument last week, you you can't hire a priest according to the law. The Lord was to be their inheritance. So clearly, again, the Levite is dissatisfied with his inheritance. He's running from God as well, looking for what is right in his own eyes. And he's living in blatant, open unbelief because it pays well. Yet even still, despite all this, how does the tribe of Dan respond? And in verse 5, they ask him if God is going to bless their journey. And he says in verse 6, go in peace. The journey that you go on is under the eye of the Lord. Here we're seeing this disobedience of the Levite is now infecting an entire tribe. The Levite is living in open rebellion and disobedience. He has no right to serve or act as a priest. But Dan asked him God's will anyway. And lo and behold, what do they hear? 
Wouldn't you know it? They hear exactly what they want to hear. Shalom. God is with you. The favor of God is upon you. Right here we get an insight into idolatry. An idolatrous heart always hears only what it wants to hear. That's what sin does. Sin blinds us from very obvious other realities and truths. Things that don't quite fit our agenda, right? Such as the fact that this priest is you know, an unlawful priest and he has no business speaking for God. Oh, that's okay. He says, I have God's blessing. I have God's blessing. Wouldn't you know it? And so the end result is, of course, in verse 7, they then go and they come across the land of Laish, um, an area that's about three miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's outside Israelite territory. And they describe the land in glowing terms. Wealth, lacking nothing in resources, spacious. And the best part is the people are basically indefensible and they don't suspect a thing. Sounds a lot like the conquest, doesn't it? The promised land. Oh, this isn't what God has promised, but it sure seems nice, doesn't it? It sure seems actually a little bit better than what God promised. Let us never think that Satan's land isn't nice and full of every kind of delight. It's like the forbidden fruit. It is desirable. It is a delight to the eyes. This land is perfect in their own eyes. It's perfect in every respect. It seems like the wisest and best thing to do for their tribe, even though it's in disobedience to God. This is the danger of idolatry in play here. Their desire for the land was good. It was necessary. It was a righteous desire to have a land to dwell in. And the goodness of the land seemed to be perfect in every respect. They had to settle somewhere. They couldn't just wander around homeless. But spurning what God promised and commanded, they prefer what is easier. They prefer what they can obtain in their own way rather than going through the proper channels. They prefer what seems better in their own eyes. And in this sense, they are settling for a cheap substitute. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about. This is what sin and idolatry does to us. It takes what is often a legitimate desire and, and it twists it towards what we think is best rather than what God has instructed in His Word. We want what we want right now. We don't want to wait for it. We want what we want in our way rather than God's way. And the worst part about it, verse 10, the spies come back and they say, oh, the land's unbelievably awesome. And God has given it into your hands. They were convinced that God favored them. In their eyes, all of this was providential. All the circumstances fell into place. This is exactly what they had been longing for. They even had a priest who said, yes. This is the will of God for you. I mean, can't you hear them now saying, it's just a God thing. It's just a God thing. 
It's exactly what we've been looking for, what we've been praying for. Nobody could have worked out these details except God alone. And we sought the proper channel of wisdom. The Levite told us we're good. Brethren, just because things go well does not mean we have God's blessing. That's the false gospel of the prosperity gospel. Instead, the same standard that Dan should have looked to is the same standard that we must look to as well. What has God said in His Word? What He says trumps any and every circumstance and providence and inclination of our own hearts. We must not look at circumstances alone. We must not fall into the trap of thinking, well, God's opened all the doors, so it must be right. We must not look ultimately to our own hearts and our own desires and what seems best to us. We must look to His Word. For if, if Dan looked to the Word, they would have seen that their favorable circumstances were an illusion. They would have seen that even though their actions were clothed in religious garb, they were really just a manifestation of unbelief. They would have seen that true divine guidance had already been given. But now because of their sin, their failure to obey, their failure to listen to God, their failure to wait on God, they're walking headlong into a trap. Favorable circumstances does not mean we have the favor of God. Because of indwelling sin, we must always fall back on what has God said. Well, we've got to pick up the pace a little bit here. Uh, so moving quickly. Secondly, then, what happens next? We see this. Secondly, idols always fail to deliver what they promise. Idols. I mean, isn't that obvious? Idols always fail to deliver what they promise. Dan's identified a better inheritance than the Lord had, had promised them. They had secured what they thought was God's blessing upon their endeavor. So they armed 600 men and they set out for Laish. And when you know it, they passed by the house of Micah once again. They're nearby and the five spies, remembering what happened, say in verse 14, Hey, uh, by the way guys, there's a house nearby. It's got all sorts of awesome religious stuff in it. You remember how we just kind of providentially happened to fall on Laish and how everything just worked out perfectly? Well, you know, our, our stop right before that was at this house. Don't you think maybe we should stop by and pick up these items, right? Go back to the place of favor? Go back to the place that led us to this wonderful land? So that's what they do. They turn by to Micah's house and in verse 16, 600 armed men stand at the entrance of the gate. It's just a little intimidating, you know. Clearly they're going to make an offer that Micah cannot refuse. A few men then go in and they steal the idols and there they encounter this same Levite who understandably says, what in the world are you doing? Why are you taking these things? And respond and say, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth. And by the way, well, why don't you come be a father and a priest to us? This is noteworthy because obviously the first response of this priest ought to have been to immediately sound the alarm and alert his master that he's being robbed. 
That's why they say, keep quiet, don't tell anybody. But even still, even, if, even though he might have kept quiet uh, out of fear for his life, he still could have remained faithful to his master. But the last thing that they say causes him to perk up a little bit. Verse 19. Hey, isn't it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man rather than to be a priest to the tribe? Uh, excuse me. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to an entire tribe? Remember, we've already noted how the priest was in direct obedience, disobedience to the law of God and how he had been hired to serve in Micah's house. Well, well, here we get another glimpse into his character. If he left his home because he wanted something better than what God had given him, if he was fine with being hired to serve as a household priest, then this is nothing less than the ultimate realization of his dreams. Prosperity, the notoriety of being a priest to an entire tribe. Oh, that's that's moving up in the world. That's living life on his own terms, right? I mean, this seems legit. I mean, a tribe needs a priest, don't they? I need to make a living. This is a match made in heaven. That's why we're told in verse 20 that his heart was glad. Oh, this sounds awesome. And he takes the the images and he leaves with them. Here we get a glimpse that the one who was commanded to teach the people the law of God and to regulate worship is the most corrupt of all. So goes the leader. So goes the people. He was in it for money. And the better offer was just too much to pass up. Well, this then sets us up for the climax of Micah. Micah's part of this story. In verse 21, the Danites depart. They put their valuables and and small ones up front because they expected to be pursued from behind. They did just rob a family. And that's exactly what happens. Micah sees what happens. He gathers his friends from the surrounding area and he pursues. He overtakes them. And when he meets them, he's furious. Legitimately so. He's been robbed. It's kind of ironic, actually, as well. You know, Micah was introduced to us in the last chapter as a robber. And so now the robber has been robbed. Nothing stings quite like getting a taste of your own medicine, right? So he's furious. He's yelling and shouting. And and they turn around and they give him a glance like, Who is this guy, you know, Goliath with David coming up to him? You come at me with sticks and stones? You come at me with a little shepherd boy? What are you doing? What's the matter with you? Look at how he responds, verse 24. You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? What have I left? That's idolatry in a nutshell, isn't it? We sacrifice everything. We trample over anyone who stands in our way of getting what we want. So much so that when we lose what we crave, we feel like we can't go on. We've got nothing left. That's just what the author wants us to see. Idolatry 
always sets us up for an eventual fall. Idols, things of this world, are weak and powerless and they cannot deliver what they promise. When we look for what can only be found in God, in the things of this world, let me rephrase that. When we look for the things of the, in the things of this world, for what can only be found in God, we will always be let down. We will always be abandoned. We will always hit rock bottom, sometimes to the point like we feel like we don't even have anything left to live for. Thieves have broken in and stolen his treasure as our Lord warned from Matthew 6. What does he have left? So this is the end of Micah in our narrative. It's a foreshadowing of what will happen with Israel. The Danites respond to him, what do you have left? Well, dude, you have your life. But if you keep talking, you're not even going to have that. And so with this, Micah turns around, drops his head, slumps over, walks slowly into the sunset, an empty man going back to an empty home. Shattered man. No idea how to pick up the pieces. Because all of his hope was in earthly things. All of his hope was in idols of this world. Things in this world cannot ever satisfy. And they can never deliver what they promise. Our hope, our portion must be in God alone. This brings us to the conclusion of all this and how it ends with the tribe of Dan. So third and lastly, we see this. The greatest judgment against idolatry is when God gives us exactly what we crave. God's greatest judgment against idolatry is when He gives us exactly what we want. Armed with good luck, the idols that brought them luck, the priest who says God's on their side, in verse 27 through 29, Dan falls upon Laish, and they essentially wipe him out. They wage holy war, harem, on them. The narrator emphasizes that Laish was a quiet and unsuspecting people. This is his way of pointing out that they were the victim here, a victim of a terrible atrocity. This was not a war sanctioned by God. This was far outside the land of inheritance. This is a despicable crime against humanity. Dan thought they were acting for God. But in reality, they were slaughtering an innocent people. In the end, they even renamed the city Dan after their ancestor. This is a new conquest. Dan now has remade the covenant with Yahweh according to their own terms. And what's most tragic about this is that they succeeded. They succeeded. God let them have what they wanted. God did not stop and chasten them for their sin. 
God didn't put roadblocks in their way. And, and this is instructful for us. This is helpful for us. How often do we get frustrated when things don't turn out like we want? When God puts roadblocks in the way of what we want for our lives? And rather than stopping and saying, you know what? God might be saving us from ourselves because He loves us. Sometimes getting exactly what we want and having everything in life work out perfectly and having that wonderful, marvelous Instagram life, sometimes that is nothing but a perfect working of God's judgment in our lives. How do we know this for sure with Dan? It seems to work out well. Well, look at what happens. In verse 30, what happens? They set up the carved image for themselves and they assign their own priest and their own priesthood. And this is where we get the climax. This is where we get the twist in the narrative that throws everything else on its head. This is the, the, the best last twist of irony that he's, that he's saved for a total shock for the original readers. This priest all along this Levite who so far has remained anonymous and nameless, this priest who's been acting in this manner is none other than Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. Moses is perhaps the most revered figure in all of Israel's history. Here is his grandson, a covenant child, excuse me, a covenant grandchild of Israel's most holy man. He is the one who is the disobedient, unlawful, corrupt priest. No wonder the author focuses so much of the story on him. No wonder uh, that the Danites recognized his voice. He was undoubtedly a famous individual. No wonder then that this is perhaps the epitome of a scandalous black mark upon the history of Dan. In fact, it's so scandalous that in the Hebrew manuscripts, the scribes entered, uh, inserted one letter into the original manuscripts so that when it was read out loud, it reads Manasseh. Only in the footnotes did they indicate that it's really Moses. They were embarrassed for it to be read out loud that this was Moses' grandson that brought this idolatry upon the land. Here then we have in Dan another faux god in the idols, another faux temple. No need to travel to Jerusalem. I got something more convenient in my own neighborhood. And we have a faux priesthood that dates to Moses and goes on even from there. The faux priesthood served until the day of captivity. What then has truly happened here? On the surface, it does seem that Dan conquered Laish, but with this false religion, with this false religion, with this false temple, the truth is, actually, it was Laish that ultimately conquered Dan. Because this cemented the canonization of Dan, even up to the captivity of the land in 734 B.C. And this is what's most frightening about it all. 
They wanted their own inheritance according to their own personal preferences and God gave it to them for half a millennium and more. That's why Romans 1 says that the worst judgment that God pours out upon idolaters is when He gives them over to themselves so that they can indulge in what they really want. And what happens then when God gives sinners over to what they really want? Sometimes we end up like Micah and we're broken and shattered and we have to reevaluate everything. But at other times, we live like kings, entirely unaware, sliding into the day of judgment that's going to catch us entirely off guard. And that's how this story ends. By mentioning the captivity in verse 30, the author is subtly reminding us, judgment eventually came upon Dan. It took another half a millennium easy But the robbers themselves were once again robbed by Assyria in 734 B.C. They were taken into exile. They were taken into captivity. And we ought to realize upon these words that yes, sometimes God delays His judgment, but eventually judgment always comes. Did you see that the essence of unbelief, unbelief, is that we look and think that when things go well in life, God's pleased with us. The essence of unbelief is that we, we, we do that. The essence of unbelief is that when our sin turns out for good, we think God's okay with it. He must have overlooked it. Or we think that because we sin and judgment doesn't come immediately, that God is, is well, time heals all wounds. Don't believe these lies. You can't look to what you see in front of you. You must walk by faith and not by sight. You must be guided by the Word as a lamp unto your feet, not by your eyes, not by your perspective, not by your impressions, not by your heart. Judgment eventually came upon Dan in the exile. And what's worse even than this is that ultimate judgment came upon them later because if you look in Revelation chapter 7, we see a list of the tribes of Israel who were sealed as the servants of God in heaven. And wouldn't you know it, Dan is the only tribe that is not mentioned. They were cut off. That's because securing the land of inheritance was a matter of faith. The physical land pointed to the heavenly land. If you spurn the sign, you spurn the thing signified. Choosing their own inheritance instead of God's inheritance was essentially them choosing ease and wealth in this life for the cup of damnation in the life to come. Sometimes God's greatest judgment is when He gives us over to what is right in our own eyes. Well, brethren, what can we say in conclusion to all this? It's a sad story. It pales in comparison to how the book ends, which we begin next week, the last three chapters of the epilogue. But what can we say in relation to this sad story. Remember the big picture. Israel acted in this way because they had no king. 
That's why the place of worship was so important. The inheritance that God give them, gave them. That's why the, ta- the, the tabernacle and the temple was the only lawful place of worship in the Old Testament. Because who is the true temple? Who is the true tabernacle? Jesus Christ. And the land of inheritance. What is the true land of inheritance? It is the heavenly land in the presence of God, who, which is secured and opened up for us through Jesus Christ. Failing to worship in Jerusalem then was like worshiping apart from Jesus Christ. It's idolatry. Spurning the land of inheritance was like grasping onto this world and rejecting the kingdom of heaven. We are to see in here not only our own tendency of who we are by nature, but we are to see the king that this author longs for. Here today, I mean, if, if you felt the, the sting of conviction as, as we think about Micah, as we think about the Danites, if, if you say, oh boy, I've done that before. That reminds me of myself. That's because this is who you are by nature. So am I. We are all idolaters by nature. That's what sin has done to us. And we can't save ourselves from it. We need someone from the outside to come in and rule and subdue our own hearts. We need someone to tell us what is right rather than us deciding what is right in our own eyes. We need someone to obey and earn that promised inheritance. Otherwise, we'll be like Dan. We'll be like Dan and we'll, we'll take the law Okay, I can do this. And we'll lower the bar. Make it a little easier. Think that we can save ourselves by our good works. Think that we can please God while in reality we're watering down His law and making it obtainable and thus building up more judgment for ourselves. Fooling us with this false notion that we can please God with our own behavior. We need someone to obey for us. We need a substitute. And we need someone to take our longings for the mud pies in the slums of this world and direct our focus on the heavenly age to come to that inheritance that awaits us at the day of Christ Jesus. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. We need that Savior to direct our gaze to our true inheritance, to that heavenly land where Christ dwells, so that we can say with the psalmist, my strength and my heart may fail, but God is my portion forever. Whom do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire but you. That's what the author of Judges can only painfully long for. That is what has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And this passage is calling you today to evaluate. Where's your heart? Where's your desires? Where's your Savior? Let us, by the grace of God, look to Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray.